So we're continuing this series on the paradoxes of Jesus, Jesus' teachings that seem contradictory or impossible, but are nevertheless true. In his book, Paradox Lost, Richard Hansen lists a series of these paradoxes that we encounter in the Christian life. Things like we see unseen things, we rest, we find rest under a yoke, we reign by serving, we're made great by becoming least, we're exalted by being humble, we become wise by being fools for Christ's sake, we gain strength by becoming weak, we triumph through affliction, we find victory by glorying in our infirmities. And the last one on this list is what we're addressing today, that we live by dying. We live by dying. Here's how Jesus puts it in Matthew 16, 25. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. So this isn't the kind of teaching that you would get in a, in a fire safety course. Um, so I don't, think this, I don't think this fireman is getting invited back to that kindergarten class. That's the thing about paradoxes. This, that's happening right now in kids' church, by the way. Um, paradoxes appear wrong and even unsafe, but they're designed that way. See, a paradox is not a straightforward or direct teaching, but one that perplexes us and is designed to make us wonder and then the teaching of Jesus to help us grow and learn what it means to be a follower of our crucified Lord. This teaching is also something that Jesus had to repeat in different ways for his disciples. In the Gospel of John, Jesus reminds his followers of this teaching this way. He says, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. He continues with this shocking language. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Well, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That's a shocking thing to say. The Apostle Paul echoes this teaching in 2 Corinthians 4.10, speaking about the suffering that Christians would face. He says, we always carry around in our body the death of Christ. Think about what happens in communion. We take the death of Christ into us so that the life of Christ may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life might also be revealed in our mortal body. What kind of teaching is this? Well, it's a paradox because it goes against our natural tendency to advance, preserve, and save ourselves. Socially, as many have pointed out, we're arranged as a culture in a, in a way that avoids death or is fascinated by death in a, in a kind of secluded horror film type way. And this death avoidance, on the one hand, can um, create surprises then when we find out that with all the advances in medicine, there's no cure for that particular illness. Jesus' teaching that we live by dying is also a paradox because we're not always good at knowing 
what's best to give ourselves to. In the same passage we're looking at today, Jesus also says, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? The soul is that, that part of the, the self. Um, it's not the same as our body, but it's not separable. It's the self that's responsive to God. When I was a kid, my family had a, a dog named Brownie, and Brownie was, was quite the gift, literally. Um, when I was about 12 years old, a neighbor friend, we'll call her a friend uh, because of what she did, she, she gave a German Shepherd Doberman puppy to me on my birthday without telling my parents. Um, and she showed up at my birthday party, gave Brownie to me, and my parents were kind of shocked into letting me keep her. Um, and, and she was quite the, the dog. She lived a very adventurous life. Um, and on one particular occasion, so we would often go hiking at a, a park nearby called Ralph Stover State Park, and there was a creek that ran through it called the Tehickon Creek. This is in Pennsylvania. And, um, and the creek would freeze along the edges of uh, the embankment of it. And we were hiking along one winter, and Brownie loved to kind of run all over the place, and she ran and slid on the ice and into the icy water, and it was flowing pretty fast at that time. And as a kid, I'm watching this, and and in becoming increasingly desperate because as Brownie was trying to swim along, she kept putting her paws up on the ice and then sliding back in. She couldn't get up on the side. And so I, I was getting desperate because I loved Brownie. You know, like a lot of us, we love our pets. And so I lurched toward the water and my parents had to pull me back. Um, and I said, I don't care what happens to me. I need to get her. And uh, in their wisdom, my parents kept me from jumping into the icy water and giving myself for brownie. Now, I'm not trying to sound heroic there. Um, my wife always jokes that I, I have a hero complex because I sometimes have dreams about saving people's lives. And uh, I, I, I just do it in dreams. Um, <laughs> but as I, as I reflect on that experience, it, it kind of reminds me of the difficulty we have in sometimes evaluating what's best to give ourselves for as well. Jesus' words are a challenge to us, not just in the call to give ourselves up, but what to give ourselves up for. And to this extent, um, I think Jesus' teachings tap into something culturally that we long for, which is a desire for something greater for ourselves, to give ourselves to, something transcendent that calls us out of ourselves. So we're looking at that paradox today that we live by dying, and it's tied to another paradox in Jesus' teaching, which is to take up our cross and follow him. And both of those ideas that we live by dying and the call to take up our cross have two key components to them. So, and you could put the emphasis on one part or another. We live by dying, or we live by dying. Or we take up our cross and follow Jesus. Or we take up our cross and follow Jesus. See, there's gain and there's loss. Something Jesus elsewhere calls counting the cost in order to follow him. And here's the key thing, is that the gain of giving up is unimaginably greater than any loss we might experience when we grasp things from a kingdom perspective. Let me read the full passage where 
this teaching of Jesus occurs. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 21 and going through 28. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it, will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. There's something rather dramatic in this teaching, to say the least. It sounds like martyrdom. And for us to live this text, it raises questions. Do we have to sort of imagine what we would do if we're in, like the early Christians in the Roman Colosseum, having to face lions or give up our faith? It's unlikely that we'll encounter that scenario here in Vancouver, uh, I should hope, So we're left with a double challenge then, understanding the paradox, this paradoxical teaching, but also living it, trying to think through what living by dying or taking up our cross means today. So to address this double challenge, we'll we'll look at uh, what paradoxes do. We'll talk about the context where this call comes in, in Jesus' teachings and then consider what it means for us today. So we've spoken a good bit over the last couple weeks about the paradoxical upside-down kingdom of God, this idea that Jesus, through his teachings, is turning things on their head. The normal order was being upended. The lowly are being exalted. The first are being made last. Those with least are seen to have the most, and so on. And it's been noted, too, that Jesus isn't just flipping things around In fact, he's setting things right. He's helping us orient ourselves rightly to how things ought to be in the world. And to grasp that requires a whole reordering of our current ways of thinking. And to that extent, we're a lot like the people in uh, Edwin Abbott's book, Flatland. This is a book written in the 1800s. Uh, it's a satire, and it's a description of this world, Flatland, that only exi- or everything is two-dimensional. So um, there's no three-dimensional reality. People live in, in pentagon-shaped houses, and two of them are randomly the roof, even though this is all two-dimensional. And, and society is arranged in a hierarchy that, uh, like the lower strata of society are triangles. And if you're nobility, then you're a hexagon or an octagon. And in this story, the, the protagonist, who's a square, has this this revolutionary encounter with a a sphere who visits him from spaceland. So spaceland is three-dimensional reality, and through a long series of conversations and teaching, 
he begins to grasp this idea of three-dimensional reality. And he tries to explain it to his fellow Flatlanders, and they become increasingly agitated with him and reject his teaching as heretical and, and even put him in prison for this blasphemous teaching that um, there's a three-dimensional world. And I think in a similar way, Jesus' teachings about the kingdom might sound initially, and certainly for his contemporaries did, like utter craziness, like things are all backwards, that that's not realistic. Notice Jesus' words when talking about the kingdom in a different place. In the Gospel of Luke, we read um, in his interaction with the Pharisees, Once, when being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Notice how the kingdom for Jesus is a fuller reality of the present reality. It's already here. Jesus' kingdom is here in our midst. And and getting that idea, I feel like a flatlander trying to grasp 3D reality. And I I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus spends three years teaching his disciples, right? Like sometimes um, I remember thinking, why didn't Jesus just come, die, and get out of here, Um, get done the whole salvation thing? Well, he needed to teach us about the kingdom way. So he spends those three patient years with his disciples in that intense um, ministry environment, showing them, teaching them about kingdom reality because some of the hard things about life in Christ, some of the more difficult things to grasp, require a lot of unlearning so that we can learn about this deeper, better, richer, fuller reality that Christ talks about. Another way of thinking about paradoxes and what they do um, is found in in Richard uh, Hansen's book, Paradox Lost. So he talks about how paradoxes are what he calls second-order solutions. So first-order solutions are when you're working from within to find a solution. So you might have a dysfunctional business. And so you as a business try to come up with better hiring policies and training processes and um, have uh, you know, meetings to think about finances. So we work from within to bring about change. Or maybe you struggle personally with laziness and so you develop your own exercise program and from, you know, through the month of January you, you, you do that program. And sometimes those first order from within solutions work, but at other times we need second-order solutions, uh, something from outside to come in and help us rethink things. That change from outside the system is especially important when our whole way of thinking or living needs revision. And those second-order solutions often seem nonsensical or paradoxical uh, because it's not part of our current thinking. It can't arise from within. I remember when in, um, in 2015 I had severe back problems and um, 
and I, had, I would have these spasms where my back would tighten up and get tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. And I felt like I was going to die of pain. And, and each time that would happen, I would want to grip the, whatever I was um, nearby and hold on for dear life and get ready for this, this painful process to begin and grip my teeth. And I remember a doctor telling me that the thing you need to do in those circumstances is the exact opposite of that. When that, when that uh, spasm comes on, you need to totally relax. It's, I likened it to sort of being in a car, spinning out on ice, about to smack into a tree, and the thing that you need to do is relax in that moment, right? It goes against everything in us and even our way of thinking. It's a paradoxical solution. And these are the kinds of solutions that Jesus offers. And why, I think, they were often met with so much resistance. But that's the thing about paradoxes. They're designed to help us with the rewiring process. They're designed to break up what one author calls the sea of frozen ice within us. That which resists change. And that might be in a rut or an unhealthy pattern. As Hansen puts it, paradox explodes assumptions that might imprison us within a system. And life outside of that prison is way better. But it might be nice and comfortable within the prison. So we need these difficult paradoxes to help us live differently. We've only scratched the surface here, but Paul sums it up well when he says that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And he does this in order to bring us into that resurrection life. In Matthew 16, which I just read from, we're parachuting into one of these second-order teachings of Jesus. And it has to do with the most central claim about who Jesus is. The fact that he's the Messiah or the anointed king. In an earlier, uh, in the previous section of Matthew to what we read, we read about Jesus being up in Caesarea Philippi. This is a, a broadly non-Jewish area, um, and it's a city, Caesarea Philippi is a city which is dedicated to the Roman uh, emperor, uh, Caesar Augustus. That's why it's called Caesarea. And, and so it's a, a bit away from Jesus' hometown um, of Nazareth and Galilee, the area where he ministered and worked. And, and I think in a sense, it's a way where he, a place where he could speak more freely about his identity. And he asks them the question, who do people say the Son of Man is? Speaking about himself. And so the disciples begin to share some of the speculating that's been happening. Some say John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some people say Elijah, another prophet, or Jeremiah from the Old Testament or one of the other prophets. And basically, they thought he's one of the great prophets. And he was, but so much more. But then Jesus turns to them and asks them that piercing question, but who do you say that I am? And that's not just one of many questions that Jesus wondered about with his disciples. It's the question. It's the question that all of us have to think through. What do you make of Jesus. Who do you say that Jesus is? And some of you might be grappling with that question. 
Maybe you've begun to explore the ways of this remarkable person, Jesus. Maybe you've been intrigued by him. And one of the things I love by, about the description of Jesus in the Gospels is that as much as he speaks to crowds and large groups, there's so many of those one-on-one encounters where Jesus stands or sits across from one person and speaks to them individually. And I think that's how Jesus often meets us, is you, singular, you. What do you make of me? I want to know you. Who do you say that I am? Prior to this point in the story, in Matthew, we've had exactly zero clear statements from Jesus about who he is. I think he wanted to show his disciples before he talked through what name to give that. And Peter hits the nail on the head, at least initially, because he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That word Christ means anointed one or king. What a thing to confess in a city named after another king, Caesar Augustus. And at this point, it's like the disciples are actually getting it. Right? He tells Peter that this has been revealed to him from heaven. He's like a rock on which he would build the church. But things take a turn when Jesus began to explain to his disciples the kind of king that he was. He says then in verse 21, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. So if Peter spoke for the disciples when he said, you are the Christ, he also spoke for them when he responds to Jesus, takes him aside and is like, you need some discipling, Jesus. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So Peter hit that paradox head on and his, his uh, brain short-circuited, right? Matthew even says that Peter rebuked Jesus is a harsh and strong term. So Jesus, or Peter, in rebuking Jesus, was rebuking his identity, was refusing him. Because it's not that Jesus said, I'm going to ride victoriously into Jerusalem, I'm going to deliver the nation, and I'm going to be, become a martyr in the process. He's saying the death, the dying, is central to what I'm about to do. That's my mission. I'm coming in order to die in Jerusalem. For those of us living in a, in a, like myself, living often in a flatland-like reality, this is hard to grasp. So having rebuked Jesus, Jesus then responds with these break, bracing words, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And Jesus' point is not that Peter was literally the devil, but that he was denying the central aim and mission of Jesus' ministry, which is to suffer and die so that we might live and share in his own resurrection life. So Jesus' disciples needed more discipling. So he teaches them, whoever wants to be my disciple must first deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. The paradox of following Jesus is that we become more fully who we are by dying to our 
ourselves. And maybe Jesus is asking some of us to participate in that even now. Maybe he's asking us to give something up that might feel costly, like a job or perhaps getting out of a toxic relationship or giving up a habit that keeps you imprisoned. It requires a kind of dying that brings a fuller life. And what does it mean to take up our cross? At at a literal level, as a New Testament scholar Craig Keener says, um, it's marching to one's own execution. He says, if disciples come after and imitate their teacher, their lives are forfeit from the moment they begin following him. To come after Jesus, Peter himself had to first return behind him to follow him. And Keter goes on and he says, from this perspective, most modern Western Christians remain unconverted, a point we should grasp in order to grapple effectively with the impact that Jesus' words would have had on his contemporaries. So where does this leave us? Just unconverted? Is, it, is Jesus' call just out of reach for us? And I, I confess here that I, I struggled as I thought about this text. There's a real risk that we domesticate or water down Jesus' teaching to take up our cross and to make it say something safe, to make it say something that leaves us comfortable. Crucifixion in the context of the first century Roman world was a deeply humiliating process that not only Jesus uh, underwent, but uh, some of his followers as well. And many early Christians gave up their life for the sake of following Jesus, literally gave it up. I'm reminded here, uh, just as a, a contemporary example as well, of the 21 Egyptian Christian construction workers who were kidnapped and murdered in Libya by ISIS in 2015. And they refused to renounce their faith. And even moments before their death, uh, several of them cried out, Oh, Lord Jesus. Lord meaning king. Uh, echoing that cry of, or that declaration about who Jesus is here. And according to one report, 20 of the men were already Christians and one of them converted on the spot, seeing the witness of his fellow Egyptians and said, their God will be my God. So reading Jesus' teachings here remind us to honor the witness of Christians through the ages and even today in the global church. And I'm also reminded of the way that we're spiritual beneficiaries of those who have given their lives for the sake of following Jesus. I I grew up hearing the stories of my grandmother who had grown up in Latvia in the former USSR. And uh, her her great-uncle... Uh, her mom's dad was a pastor, and he and several of his brothers, uh, because of their faith, were deported to Siberia and had to work in labor camp for years uh, because of following Jesus. And those stories were handed on through my family, and I'm the beneficiary of the suffering of others for the sake of Christ, that hard-won faith. And in addition to honoring others' witness and acknowledging our spiritual debt to others, there's another way I think Jesus' teaching that we live by dying and taking up our cross 
might speak to us today. And I'm helped here by Luke's version of of Jesus um, speaking with the disciples, where he says this, Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. That word daily reminds us that this is meant to be an ongoing reality as well. And some of you live this out already by denying your own self-promotion, maybe at work in order to be more present to your family or loved one. Many of you deny yourself regularly in order to give to um, your children, to your, your um, church family, and in many other ways. Some of you live this out radically by giving of your time and your finances. My dad demonstrated this for me when I was a kid. He, um, he had this, my dad is a, a, a Christian, and he sought to teach our family what it meant to live the life of Christ. And regularly, he would sit us down as a family and talk about finances. And he would tell us how much he made and how much uh, income our, our household made and how much they had to spend and what taxes were and how much they gave. And there was some age when I was sort of starting to get this whole finances thing where I, was, I just was horrified because I found out I, that they gave more in taxes than they gave uh, in uh, their giving. And uh, I said to my dad, how can you give more to the government than you give to God? And, and instead of, I don't know their exact tax bracket, but let's say it was around 25 or 30 percent. And... Instead of taking me to the side and saying, foolish Matthew, like, if you knew, um, like, you would understand that you can't give that much money or we couldn't live how we live. Instead, he took up the challenge and he said, okay, for the next period of time, I think it was about a year, we'll give more than we give in taxes. And I, I am so grateful for that example of sacrificial giving, which is so such a greater gift than if he had bought me whatever Lego set I wanted as a kid, right? He gave me a greater gift by giving up um, and showing me this way of entering into the kingdom life of God. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves in order to live that fuller life. And my wife, Abby, also demonstrated this for me one time. Um, back, when, uh, back to that painful uh, back time that I was experiencing with lower back issues, um, there was about a, a couple-week period when I could barely move from our bed because I was in so much pain. And um, it, pain has a way of drawing you into your own sort of bubble and world. And I, you know, nothing exists outside of yourself. And for a brief moment, I remember her coming in to our room and I was asking her, like, well, what did you have for dinner? And she said, I didn't, didn't eat. And I said, well, what are you going to have for dinner? Well, she hadn't, she wasn't going to eat dinner. I, after some probing, I, I realized that she hadn't eaten for 48 hours because she was fasting and praying for me. And, and just that willingness to give herself up in order to pray and ask God to fill me with life and renewed uh, hope again uh, is just such, left such an impression on me. And of course, she didn't have to do that, but she modeled that self-giving. 
And whether prayer or fasting, giving up bad habits, giving financially in, in those, those uh, risky ways beyond our comfort zone, we're in a season of the year that's a wonderful time for God to ask, to ask God what it might mean for you to live this cross-shaped life daily. And Jesus calls not just to create this impossible standard, because there's another part of Jesus' teaching that I don't want us to miss, and that Peter missed when he rebuked Jesus. He rebuked him about the suffering and dying, but he didn't say, Jesus, did you just say you would be raised to life in three days? Right? It's the, there's a, a resurrection life on the far side of this. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. The gain is unimaginably greater than the loss. And there are many ways that we all will encounter death on that daily basis, um, whether it be through literal death of a friend or a friendship or estrangement in a relationship. Um, and of course, we all will face death. And here's the thing Jesus says to us, if you hitch your life to mine, you'll find life. I'll bring you through. Death will not have the last word. Not in your home, not in your work, in your relationships, and not even your physical death. As the Old Testament psalmist puts it, you make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. That's worth living for and giving ourselves for. And to that end, I want to conclude today with a prayer. This is a modified prayer from, written by author David Taylor, and I, I think it speaks to the things that Jesus teaches us in Matthew. So let's close in prayer together. O oh Lord, you who invite us to die to ourselves so that we might find ourselves anew. We honor the great cloud of witnesses that surrounds your church through the ages and ask that you would strengthen the global church that suffers for your name today. We also pray that we would not be too full of to-do lists and deadlines and anxieties during this season of Lent so there's no space for you to do your work of transformation in us. But grant us, we pray, the grace to welcome your Spirit's work to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily, and to breathe the renewing life of Jesus in us, so that we might participate in Christ's sufferings and know the power of his resurrection. In the name of the one who heals us by his wounds, amen. <laughs>